0: We now turn to our time of worship through the Word, and instead of continuing in our series on the one another's as we normally do when I preach, we're going to take a brief pause in our series, and we're going to have a sermon about hope. We're going to look at hope this morning, so please turn with me in your Bible, Bibles to Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 20. Hebrews 6, 9 through 20. The author of Hebrews writes this, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute." In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We are grateful to you for words of encouragement, for words of hope. We know that because of everything that we've experienced over the last year, it has been easy for us to lose heart, to be discouraged, to lose hope. And so we pray that our time in your word this morning will be something that we can hold on to. It'll be something that even when we are discouraged, we can recall to our minds, and we can be comforted, we can be encouraged. We pray, Father, that you would glorify yourself in our eyes this morning and in our hearts, help us to see how wonderful you are, how marvelous you are, and to live accordingly to respond accordingly. Thank you, Father, for this time it 's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Well, our first month of 2021 is essentially in the books and while some of us were looking forward to the change in the calendar year after we experienced the unprecedented hardships of 2020, what many of us have been reminded of is the fact that the constant churning of the world, the constant churning of time is no respecter of the calendar. Life moves on at an unrelenting pace and it is because of the coldness of life that many have felt hopeless at many points this past year. Generally speaking, the majority of our lives are, are lived without a constant, conscious pursuit of hope. The only time when we are aware of our need for hope is when hope is diminishing or when it's already gone. However, if you find yourself in the position of losing hope or being hopeless, or you know someone who is in that position, our sermon this morning reminds us that hope is not lost. It might seem like hope is lost, but hope is not lost. Hope may seem elusive, but the hope that we need, the hope that God provides to us, is the hope that is found in himself. Now, I understand that that might not seem like much, especially when you might already know these truths, but our Heavenly Father, he loves us very much, and he holds out hope to all of his children. And this is the hope that we need at times, that we need help remembering, that we need help knowing, that we need help grasping when hope is dear, it appears dim or lost. Now, on the eve of the launch of our biblical counseling training ministry here at San Francisco Bible Church, I want to show you, through God's word, the hope that God holds out for every person, every person who will believe in him and will seek after him, Biblical counseling it is not necessarily a ministry that is limited to those who want to provide uh, counsel for others. It's not for the professionals. It's not for the the incredibly gifted people. It's an extension of discipleship. It's an extension of helping others by providing them the hope that is found in God's word. And so, as we study the hope that God provides us this morning in His word, we're going to look at two characteristics of hope that encourage Christians in troubling times. Two characteristics of hope that encourage Christians in troubling times. The first characteristic of hope is hope's motivation. Hope's motivation. The author of Hebrews, wrote to Jewish Christians who were under pressure due to persecution. And because of the intensity of this persecution, some of these Christians were tempted to return to their former manner of life. They were tempted to return to Judaism to make things easier for themselves. Now, it is possible that those who were tempted to return to Judaism were younger in the faith and did not fully understand salvation. However, the author of Hebrews... His identity is uh, is debated. He makes it very clear to these Christians, who are te- who are tempted to abandon Christianity, that if they have genuinely believed in Jesus Christ, but are now purposefully rejecting saving faith, they will not be able to return to the Lord. Their return is impossible because they rejected the truth after knowing the truth and experiencing the joys of being in the truth and instead returning to what is not truth. Now we are not talking about people who grew up in the church and consider themselves Christians only to reject their faith later as a result of a crisis of faith. The best case scenario, those people, though they looked the part, said the right words, and did the right things, they only had a cultural identification with Christianity rather than a real relationship with Jesus Christ. The worst case scenario is that these people whom we believe to be Christians, identify themselves as Christians just so that they could fit in with the people around them. So that they could experience all the benefits of being in Christian circles and in Christian fellowship, but not actually follow Christ. And these are people that we would call cultural Christians. And the kind of people that the author of Hebrews has in view they're not necessarily these cultural Christians. But they are those who have had genuine saving faith. Cultural Christians don't have genuine saving faith. But, uh, But genuine Christians who have believed upon Christ, who've turned away from their sins, who love God but because of convenience decide that they will reject God, these are the ones, these are the ones, who will be impossible uh, for to return to God. Because they've consciously chose to reject the truth and leave it behind and never return. Now, if they know God, if they know saving faith and the blessings God gives in salvation and and they choose to to reject God, what we see in verse 8 is that they are like thorns and thistles in the ground, worthless, close to being... to being cursed and end up being burned. And these are indeed some serious and crushing realities for those who ultimately and finally choose to reject Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. So you might be thinking, wait a minute, Pastor Roger, I thought you said that this message was going to be about hope. And what you're describing to us from Hebrews is actually very, very discouraging. It's depressing. And I would agree with, agree with you on that objection and I would point you to verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. The author of Hebrews, he recognized that there would be some who would be discouraged and tempted to doubt whether their salvation was legitimate after hearing the judgment that awaits those who have been saved, but ultimately turn their backs on God. And so, he provides them with encouragement. This encouragement is first seen in how he identifies his his readers or his audience as beloved. Now, this is the first and the only time that the author of Hebrews uses this word beloved. And that emphasizes the attention that he wants to bring to this word. He wants his audience to look up, to pay attention, because he's calling them beloved. Beloved. The first time that he's, he's used that all, the, in the entire book. He doesn't use it again after either. He wants to tell them that though he is warning those who are tempted to leave Christianity for Judaism, that even though that warning is merited, even though that warning is, is strong it's severe, it does not take away from the fact that he loves them and that he wants them to know the truth. And not only does he love them, but he also has a, a high confidence in them. He, he says that he is convinced of better things concerning them. He, he knows that his audience would not be resigned to the same outcome of judgment as those who reject God and leave him behind finally. They're not in danger of being worthless. They are not in danger of experiencing the fiery wrath of God upon them for their sins. Rather... Rather, they will be in relationship with God. They will experience all the blessings that come with being a child of God. And that includes, but is not limited to, maturity in the faith. As they begin to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit as they grow in Christ-likeness. These are some of the, the things that accompany salvation. It's maturity, growing, they're, they're not going to be a worthless tree dried up and, and bearing no fruit, designated for, to, to be cut down and, and for burning. They're going to be instead a healthy, fruit-bearing tree to the glory of God. Now, while it is important to firmly warn Believers of the danger of succumbing to the temptation of abandoning God to return to Judaism and make their lives better, make their lives easier, the author of Hebrews uh, also emphasizes his confidence in them. His confidence uh, in, in why he believes that they will... Uh, have better things. Verse ten: For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. The confidence that the author of Hebrews has is is not simply because he has a personal bias, a personal f- uh, attitude of favoritism towards these Jewish Christians to whom he writes. His confidence is based on what he knows about God. And how God would view their faith. He reminds us that God is not unjust. God is fair. God does not forget. And because God knows what his saints have done, he will not forget them, nor their good works. Now we know that good works do not save us. We know that. Good works do not save us. Right? Good works do not convince God that we are somehow w- more worthy of salvation than others. Right? And He chooses to save us not according to our works or be- or, or according to our potential to do more works, but be- according to His grace. What we see here is that the good works of believers are evidences of genuine saving faith because of the motivation behind those good works. Genuine believers do good works, not for their own glory or for their own satisfaction. They do their good deeds. They serve in the church because they ultimately love God. And this is indicated by the fact that God does not forget the work and love which has been shown towards whom? Not towards other people. What does it say? the work and love which you have shown towards his name Toward his name in other words the work and love that you've shown towards God himself now how does this work and love toward God manifest itself in the lives of believers well as we can see in in the latter part of verse 10 it's in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. There is a track record of faithfulness motivated by a love for God that desires to obey our Lord through ministry to the saints in the church. Now, we may not know the motivations uh, of, of why other people serve in, in the church, but God does. God does. He knows our hearts. And He can see whether we are in ministry because we love Him or because we love ourselves. And so that leaves us with a question. Do we serve in the church because we love God? Do we serve because we love God's people and we want to serve them? Or do we serve for other reasons and for other motives? What is our motivation? Those who serve God out of a genuine love for him and a desire to do his will in the lives of his people are the ones God will remember. We are not necessarily talking about how much spiritual uh, giftedness you have. We're talking about faithfulness in serving God through the means which he has given you. And... And you know the means that he's given you. It could be financial, it could be energy, it could be time. Right? It's whatever he's given you. Are you faithful in serving God in that way? Are you faithful in serving his people in that way? Because you love him. Because you love him. It's easy for us to think that, of course we do. Right? Of course I serve God because I love him. Of course I serve other people because I love them. Right? But do you really? Or are you really seeking after their applause, their, um, their kind words, their gratefulness? What are you looking at? Do you have a secret pride that you experience when someone says, wow, thank you so much for serving? Is pride well up in you when people express their gratefulness to you? Or are you actually serving because I love God. I love God, and it is a privilege to serve Him, and that's why I, will, I am willing to be spent for His sake. That's why I'm willing to give up my time, to give up my energy, to give up my money, to give up whatever, all for the sake of the glory of God. Right? That's what, what marks someone who serves because they love God. It's not because they like the praise of men. It's not that they, because they like to be busy because they love God. God will not forget those who serve Him diligently. For those of you who are losing hope, this is extremely comforting. You may feel alone, but you are not alone. You may feel forgotten, but you are not forgotten. The Lord sees you. He sees you where you are. And he has not forgotten you, and he will not forget you. He will remember you in the future, and he will be faithful. Faithful even to the point of bringing you all the way home. And with that in mind, let's read verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. You know, knowing that God will not forget us and the work and the love that we do for His name, it reminds us that we must work hard. Now, we can still have a time for a rest and recuperation, but we are still called to live a lifestyle of diligent service to our Lord. And As we were reminded last week by Pastor Henry, you know, each one of us is called to serve the Lord in disciple-making, Through the Lord's strength. We rely on His strength. Disciple making or or other forms of ministry such as meeting needs in the congregation, supporting our our foster families, uh, nursery, and, and the list goes on. All of it requires diligent service on our behalf. And the same diligence highlighted in verse 10 of faithful ministry that occurred in the past and continues on uh, in the present is the same kind of diligence it's the same kind of diligence that the author of Hebrews and his ministry team desire for the, the Jewish Christians to have in their lives as they endure hardship as they try to cling to hope as they as as they as they con- tr- uh, as, as they continue to pursue Christ We're supposed to diligently worship Christ, diligently pursue Him in everything. The end goal of this diligence, to serve the Lord and His saints, to continue on in spiritual disciplines, to continue to press on towards Christ, is so that Christians might realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, at times, we equate the hope that awaits us in the end with the promise that God gives us, such as there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, no more poverty. Basically, everything in this world that is a a product of sin, all of those things go away, and, and we equate our hope with those things at times. Now, while we should naturally long for these benefits, the hope that awaits us in the end is not simply that we no longer experience pain, that we no longer experience suffering, that we no uh, longer experience loss in heaven. Those benefits are a part of the whole. They're only a small part of the whole. Hope is fully realized when we are with God in glory, when we are home and we are with our Father. That is the full realization of hope. John 17 3 reminds us that eternal life is not living forever, it's knowing God. Being face to face with God, just like Abraham was, but better. Or just like Moses was, but better. We want to be face-to-face with God. We want to see Him in all of His splendor, all of His glory and His beauty. That is the ultimate goal. That is the ultimate prize and the ultimate treasure. God promises that sin will finally be defeated, that we're going to have resurrected bodies, that we're going to inherit His kingdom, that we're going to have blessing. But most importantly, He promises that we will be with Him. Oh, what a joy that will be to be with Him and to see Him in all of His beauty, to have all of our sin stripped away so that we might worship the King, so that we might receive Him as our inheritance. God promises, uh, God's promises to us are much more than removing grief and bad circumstances from our lives. He is promising that we're going to have a relationship with Him in a way that was not possible, that is not possible while we are still in our sins. And it is this big picture hope that encourages us to be diligent until the end. If you know that a prize is waiting for you at the end, you work hard to go get it. Verse 12, So that... You will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. The saints of old are an example to us to keep pressing on even when we cannot see. Have you ever wondered why God makes so many promises to His people in the Scriptures? In part, it is because he loves his people and he's trying to demonstrate his love to people um, and he's also trying to teach future generations through his promises. Uh, you know, it, He is trying to teach them about himself. In Isaiah 46.10, God reminds us that he is God and, and he has already declared the end from the beginning. Why does he do that? Why does he make these promises and declare the end from the beginning? Why does he make that known to all of us? He doesn't need to. He could just tell us, trust me, and he'll get us there to the end. Why does he do that? Why does he make all these promises, declare the the ending before it even happens? It's so that when we see it, when we see his faithfulness, when we see that he is willing to fulfill every single one of his promises leading up to the end, We will glorify Him. We will be encouraged, yes. But our encouragement is not necessarily the main thing. We're going to be encouraged, but we're also going to glorify Him saying, You indeed are God. You indeed can keep your word. You indeed are powerful. And because of that, you are worthy of all worship and all of our praise and all of our trust. In Romans 15, 4, we were reminded by Paul that, that what was written in earlier times is for our instruction. So all of these scriptures that we have before us today, they're written so that we can learn these things. Right? We can have that mentality of, I can trust God. I know He will keep His promises. I know that He is good. Right? All of the scriptures were written so that we can be confident of those facts. So that we can be assured of those facts. We know, because God has proven himself faithful to the promises in the past, that he will be faithful to fulfill his promises in the future as well. No matter how dark it gets. No matter how lonely you feel. No matter how bad your circumstances become. You can trust him. Because he's proven that he is trustworthy. He's proven... That he really is a treasure worth pursuing. The hope that lies before us is characterized by this motivation. The hope that waits for us in the end, it's not something that once we achieve it, we get temporary excitement and then we fade back into our normal lives. The great prize that we have The great joy that we will have will be an everlasting satisfaction, an everlasting joy. Because the great prize, the great hope that lies ahead of us is God Himself. And as a result, the hope that awaits us is not something that we just kind of coast into. But it's something that we discipline ourselves towards towards receiving, just like Olympic athletes who endure whatever pain it takes. They overcome any obstacles that present themselves, all with the goal of obtaining their hope for the prize, for the medal, for the glory. We're like the Olympic athletes in this way, except for we press on, we are diligent, we are motivated to be disciplined because we get God in the end. We get God in the end. And this is the reason why we cling to hope. Because it's not something that's wishy-washy. It's not something that is is theoretical. It is concrete. The hope that we have is God himself. The hope that we have is God himself. Now, I know that it, it may be difficult right now to be motivated, to press on towards Christ. But remember one thing. God will fulfill His promises to you. He does not forget you, nor does He forsake you. And even if it hurts, even if you cannot see a way out, remember what lies ahead and run towards that hope that we have in God Himself. And that leads us to the second characteristic of hope that encourages Christians in troubling times, which is hope's sureness. Hope's sureness. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 15. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he, that is Abraham, obtained the promise. So we see in verse 12 that the author of Hebrews' audience were encouraged... To be imitators of those who inherited promises, uh, the, the promises that were made to them. And here, in verses 13 through 15, we're given an example of such a person. That example is Abraham. Now, um, you know, while while Abraham is referred to as an example of someone who had patiently waited for God to fulfill His promises, God is actually still the center of attention. Right? God takes center stage, even though Abraham is being referred to as the example. Right? Because God is the one who makes the initial promise to Abraham to bless him in Genesis 12 and, and, and to multiply his descendants. Right? God reaffirms that promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, promising that, that the childless Abraham, his descendants that will multiply from him, will come through Not an adopted son, but his own biological son that he will have with his wife, Sarah. And that's an incredible promise, considering the fact that Abraham and Sarah were in their 80s when God made that promise. Yet God made this promise to Abraham and made himself fully responsible to fulfill the terms of his promise to Abraham. There, there was, there were no opt-out clauses. There were no terms and conditions that could nullify God's promise. There were no outs that God could use to take himself out of his promise. God put himself completely on the line, completely on the hook to give Abraham, 80-year-old Abraham, a biological son through his similarly aged wife. God did not have to make this kind of promise. But as we see at the end of verse 13 and 14, he did, and he guaranteed it. He swore by his own name that he would do so for Abraham. Now, verse 14, it is interesting, because this guarantee of God's promise was given to Abraham in Genesis 22. It's a reaffirmation of the first promise that God made in Genesis 15. Now, God confirmed that he would follow through with his promise to Abraham after he tested Abraham's faith by asking Abraham to wait for the son, the very son that he had been waiting for, for 25 long years so that he might obtain the promise that God had made to him. Abraham knew that he could trust God. He had faith in God, and he he loved God, so he was willing to even offer up his own son because he believed that God would keep his promise. He believed that if God asked him to give up his son, that God would give his son back because he promised that Abraham would have descendants through Isaac. Abraham's hope was sure; it was concrete in God, because he uh, he saw what God has done in his life. Right? If God can change biology so that a man and his wife could have a son while they were elderly and past the years of childbearing, can God not also fulfill His promise to make Abraham's descendants to be like the stars in heaven, in the heavens? through that son. Absolutely you can. Right? If God can change biology, he can absolutely raise a son up from the dead, if that was the case. And we, we know in the story that God ultimately stops Abraham from sacrificing his son, right? and he commends Abraham for his faith, and that's why he reaffirms the promises here. But as we said earlier, the author of Hebrews he is holding up Abraham as an example of great faith, but he is also demonstrating the mighty power of God. He's he's pointing us to Abraham, but he's pointing us to God. Right? Abraham's faith would not be justified if he had believed any other uh, any other person's promise. Right? If it was just a normal human being who promised Abraham that he's going to have a son, uh, you know, by the time Abraham had had Isaac, he was one hundred years old. Right? So if he believed any other human person tell, telling him that, Abraham's faith would not be justified. Abraham would just be crazy. right? But Abraham, he didn't believe just any other person. He believed God. He believed God. And so his faith was entirely justified. Because Abraham's faith was in the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present, the only Uh, The only people who would think that he's crazy are those who don't believe in the mighty power of God. And it is precisely because his faith was in Almighty God that Abraham, though he did have his moments of doubt, patiently waited and obtained the promise of God. And we can see more of why Abraham's faith was justified when we look at verses 16 through 18. Hebrews 16 through 18. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope Set before us. The author of Hebrews goes back, and he explains why God swore by Himself in His promise to Abraham, by pointing to something that, oddly enough, continues today. Even though many uh, do not believe in God, it's the uh, the concept of swearing by someone or something higher than themselves to prove the sincerity of their words to prove their truthfulness and taking in an oath to make it clear that their word should be honored and considered good thus ending any type of dispute about whether they are going to follow through or not this is seen in civil court cases when um, and and, um, also when you're um, volunteering for jury duty but uh, swearing by someone greater uh, than themselves and, and giving an oath is also used to confirm elected officials to office. Or we saw that recently with the recent swearing in of President Biden on Inauguration Day. And he put his left hand on a Bible to indicate that God acts as a witness, that he will do his best to faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will do his uh, best, do to, to the best of his ability, uh, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Now, why does that uh, formality of placing a hand on the Bible and swearing an oath still exist in our secular country today? It's because the image still resonates with many Americans and, and provides the illusion that whoever is being sworn in, whoever is taking that oath, is going to do the best that they can to do what they promise because they're being held accountable to God because God acts as witness. Now, of course, in God's case, there is no one higher than himself who he can call as a witness to his truthfulness and sincerity to fulfill his promises to fulfill his word and so he swears by himself and he does this for us to see as we can see in verse 17 so that the heirs of the promise that means every spiritual descendant of Abraham every person who has believed in God afterwards can be can can be encouraged by the unchangeableness of his purpose right to, to see that God's purpose it is unchangeable he will definitely fulfill it god gives both a promise and an oath to fulfill that promise so that every single believer whether they're jewish or gentiles can see that god makes good on his promises right and and he absolutely will fulfill them. The unconditional aspects of God's promises to mankind will assuredly be met. And we can count on it because we can take God at his powerful word. Or we can take him at his word. He doesn't go back. He doesn't look for outs. Right? He is absolutely faithful to do what he says he will do. He controls every aspect of human history to guarantee that His promises come to pass. Nothing can change the sureness of His promises. And it's for this reason that we see in verse 18 that we can have the confidence the strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is before us. God's word alone is powerful enough to guarantee His promises. After all, it is with His words that He created the entire universe. As if that was not powerful enough or unchangeable enough, God provides enough to doubly emphasize His commitment to His promises. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are losing hope or are feeling hopeless, look to our Lord. Remember who He is. Remember His great power. Remember the power of His Word and the unchangeableness of His Word. If he says that he will never leave you, if he says that he will never abandon you, if he says that he will take you all the way home because he loves you and that you can be you can rest assured in uh, in that, you can be rest assured in that, then you can trust him even when you cannot see, even when it hurts. Yes, we will face hardship in this life. Yes, we're going to shed many tears. We will be grieved as we Continue to draw breath in this life, but our heavenly Father, who cannot lie, who will stop at nothing to bring about his promises to us, is with us. He is with us, he will not let you go. Jesus tells us in john ten twenty eight to twenty nine that he gives eternal life to his sheep, and that no one will snatch them out of his hand, nor will anyone Snatch us out of God the Father's hand. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5.10 that after we have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who himself called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself be the one who perfects, confirms, strengthens, and establishes you. In Revelation 21, 3-5, to John reveals that God is going to dwell among us, that He will make us His people forever, that He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will no longer exist. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because God will make things right and He will make things new. These promises that we just referenced, they're only a small portion of the promises that God has made in His Word. And there are many, many more, and God will be faithful to fulfill every single detail of the promises that He has made. Right, there, there are promises that uh, God has made in the Scriptures that people, uh, that scholars, uh, other pastors have pointed to in, in the Scriptures and they've said God has fulfilled those promises already. And we could believe them, we could take them at their word for that, but when you look at the promises that have set, have been said to be fulfilled completely fulfilled, right? if you look at those promises, you realize as you compare what is said to be fulfilled and, and what God has actually promised that there is still more to be fulfilled there 's still aspects in the pro- in those prophecies. that that need to happen before we can actually say God has fulfilled his promise. So basically, there is still more coming. There is still more coming. And so when you think about this, we ought to be encouraged, brothers and sisters. No matter how hopeless it gets, no matter how dark our lives might seem, God is so faithful in His promises to us that His promises are not considered fulfilled until He fulfills every single detail. God pays attention to details. He's a God of details. He is in the business of keeping his promises. And as he does so, he will not let any one of those details fall aside. So you can be confident that every promise that he has made that you know of every, that, that you can become aware of every promise that he makes, he will fulfill all the way up to the smallest detail. We tend to lose heart in our lives when the circumstances in our lives turn sour or when they become overwhelming. And without minimizing how significant these circumstances can be in our lives, the reason why we lose heart, the reason why we become discouraged, the reason why we can feel like we or be that... Uh, that we're being oppressed or or, or that we are depressed is because we temporarily lose sight of how sovereign the author and perfecter of our faith is over the circumstances of, of our lives. And what we have to fight to remember, and sometimes this is why we require the assistance of fellow believers is that God is not just the God of our salvation. He is also the God of our circumstances. And this doesn't mean that our circumstances will always get better. But it does mean that hope is found in the person of God himself. Hope is knowing that God Does everything that he promises. Hope is knowing that God reigns, that he loves you, and that he will never forsake you. And as a result, verse 19 to 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews gives us a helpful metaphor to encourage discouraged hearts to trust in God when he reminds us that the sureness of our hope that we have in God is an anchor of the soul. Now, if you had a chance to see an anchor in real life, you know that anchors, especially the ancient ones, uh, but you know, even some of the modern ones too, they tend to be very large, right? And incredibly he- heavy. And the size and the, the weight of the anchor is designed to ensure that ships that drop anchor stay secure. That they don't move. And in addition to the size and weight of the anchor, these anchors have teeth or uh, something called uh, a fluke that digs into the floor of the ocean uh, or the body of water, mainly the ocean though, to ensure greater security when the ship drops anchor. That it won't go anywhere even if the winds uh, move the sails hard. Even if the waves uh, are, are, are strong. The hope that we have in our souls in God and His promises is an anchor to our soul. It's firm and secure. It's sure and steadfast because we know that God is completely reliable and trustworthy. Even if the storms of life come through, nothing, nothing will separate us from our Lord or invalidate His Word. Not only is the hope that we have an anchor of the soul, it's anchored. It's an anchored hope that enters within the veil. It's anchored within the veil. This is a reference to the inner veil in the temple, the Holy of Holies. And that's significant because the Holy of Holies was where the presence of God was in the temple. We have full access to God in a way that the Old Testament saints did not have. Because, verse 20, Jesus has entered into the veil as a forerunner for us. He paved the way. For us to have intimate access to God. And that access to God is anchored within the veil. Which means that there is nothing that will move you away from the presence of God. And it is for this reason that we can have hope. It is, is for this reason that even in times of calamity we have a strong hope in the Lord. Now, why was Jesus able to enter into the Holy of Holies? After all, he's not a Levite, and he's not qualified to be a priest. Um, But Jesus is able to enter into the Holy of Holies, though he's not a Levite and, and not technically qualified to be a priest, because by going to the cross and offering up his life in exchange for those who believe, Jesus acted as a high priest on our behalf. He's not a Levitical priest, but he's uh, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a, a priest-king who worshipped Yahweh, and and he was responsible for pronouncing blessing on Abraham uh, earlier on in Genesis. And, and his priesthood was unique because he worshipped God and represented uh, his people before God, um, before the the Levitical priesthood was established. Jesus's priesthood is just like. He also is a priest king. Now, more can be said about this, of course, but the, the author's main point here is that because of Jesus' status as our high priest and king, the hope that we have in God, the access that we've been given, the direct access that we've been given to God, it is available because of Christ. The hope that we have is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. It's absolutely sure. There is nothing that will ever be able to invalidate God's promises to us. There are no loopholes to be exploited to let God off the hook from fulfilling His promises. God says what He means. He does not over-promise out of His good intention. Because of His righteous character, because of uh, the fact that He is all-truth because he is all-powerful, our God can uniquely provide the hope that we need that will not fade in times of great desperation. This morning, we studied what the author of Hebrews had to say about hope as we observed two characteristics of hope that can encourage Christians in troubling times. Because hope is found in the person of God and is given to us by God, hope is characterized by motivation. There is a motivating element to hope that pushes us forward to try to lay hold of God, to cling to Him and continue to serve Him out of a desire to love Him more and do His will on this earth. Hope is also characterized by sureness. Because hope is rooted in the unchangeable, sure truth of God, we can trust that God means every single word that he says and that he will do everything that he says. And so as a result, we can be encouraged, even in times of doubt, to take hold of that hope that God sets before us. Friends, I know that it hasn't been easy this past year. The storms of living in a COVID world and navigating through the political maelstrom in our culture has been wearying and concerning. But I encourage you to look to our Lord, to push yourself, to think about God's big picture plan, to remind yourself daily of the good that God has done in human history yes but also the specific good things that he has done in your life he has not abandoned his saints in the past he's not about to begin to do that now run to the lord brothers and sisters cling to him as if your life depended on him because it does our dependence on the lord it's not a crutch it's not a crutch To call him a crutch would shortchange who he is. Brothers and sisters, God is not a crutch. He is our life support. He is our life support. Apart from him, we can do nothing and will not be able to stand. We will not be able to live. He is our life support. So cling to him. Hold on to him. Remember who he is, what he's done, what he has said. Hold fast to him. Hold fast to God, hold fast to Christ, our sure and steady anchor, for he himself is, is the hope that we have in heaven.